Welcome to Truth Transistor Radio. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I'm your host, Rob Hendrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 1618. Hello, Truth Transistors. Welcome to another episode of my podcast. This is episode number 27, Bible Study Part 4, and I'm calling it From Slavery to Freedom. But first, I just thought I'd uh, talk a little bit about narcissism, which is something that is commonly talked about these days. Um, I think I've heard that word for quite a while, but I really didn't think much about what it was. Um... A friend of mine brought it up a few weeks ago, and I started thinking about it. And then on on the YouTubes, <laughs> I uh, looked up, you know, some things about that and found, like, examples of it and how they argue and how they always, you know, they'll gaslight you sometimes. You know, they'll never take, like, they'll be a, very abusive. And then if you or if the victim... Um, says one thing that is somewhat, uh, you know, offensive, like one tiny thing, then the other person, the narcissist, will spend an hour basically telling them how bad they are, you know. And um, anyway, I, I, I was thinking about this and wondering, like, if somebody is that bad to where they can't, ever acknowledge anything they've done wrong that they're um you know that they're always especially people that they're close to like in a relationship or in family uh maybe even a boss um they like to have power they like to have control but they tend to be very charming when they barely know you you know and uh it, it got me thinking, could a born-again Christian be like this? And what is the definition of being a Christian? It's acknowledging that you are a sinner, right? It's, it's, it's not just necessarily just saying, I believe in the Bible. It's acknowledging that you are a sinner. So there is some humility there. And, it, you know, to love others, you know, the way God loved you. Now, I, I don't know if somebody could be a narcissist. Um, I would have to say that I think that, no, I would say no. You, If you are a born-again believer, you could not be a narcissist. Um, because to, you know, to get saved, you first have to acknowledge that you are a sinner. And ask Christ to forgive you. Now, I'm not saying that Christians can't struggle with pride, um, entire, you know, those kinds of things. But I think to get to that place where they are um, completely <laughs> narcissistic, I, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, and then it got me to thinking about tyr- tyrannical governors or you know leaders uh, in in politics. To me, uh, they are all probably 
could be classified as a narcissist. Cult leaders could be classified as narcissists. Um, you know, when I think of a cult leader, I think of somebody that wants to control others. And um, to me, you know, to me, uh, that is a cult leader more than, say, somebody that gives bad uh, theology or bad doctrine. Um, because I think you could be a cult leader and be telling pretty good doctrine, but you still have control over other people. And there's unfortunately quite a few pastors, even in the Protestant churches, that give decent theology. It's not necessarily anything... I mean, I may not agree with everything they say, and maybe oftentimes if they are like that, there's going to be something uh, that is pretty extreme that may not show up at first, but if you listen to them enough, it'll show up. Uh, but for the most part, maybe they are pretty good at deceiving people that have fairly sound doctrine. He's able to take the Bible or she and um and sound pretty close you know and even a lot of uh fundamental christian doctrines that they'll spout out and then all of a sudden you'll they'll come across you know they'll start talking about something that is uh that is the extreme moment you know um i don't know how else to explain that but um it's very common, I think, um, unfortunately, and I have my doubts, and maybe they deceive themselves. Um, I would say that if they are born-again believers, that eventually they're going to repent of that. They're going to change. They're going to say, you know what, I was wrong about this. I was wrong about how I, uh, you know, my pride, you know, I was wrong about these teachings. I was wrong about how I controlled my congregation or whatever that I think that um, a true believer will eventually repent you know whether you know and that could could mean those that are doing it for the money I'm not saying that they're all nar narcissists in that regard maybe it's all about the money and they don't necessarily want to treat their people badly or control them um, so that you know that's kind of off topic but it's um, it's a little different but it's just as evil, I guess. Um, and so, you know, narcissism. I mean, it's 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 now considered to be, you know, uh, somewhat of a medical term. I mean, is it a mental illness? Is it demonic, like, to get that far? Is it somebody that was abused themselves and they are defensive about it, uh, about their life, and want to turn their rage on to other people and they really don't care. Uh, I've heard in many cases it's insecurity and it's sort of their fantasy world that they live in that they are all that and they are due, um, what's the word, not due, but like they are entitled, so to speak. Um, deep down they know deep down they know that they are you know they know the truth but they don't acknowledge it and it only makes them angry to to think about it so they don't and 
especially when they find somebody that they can control, especially nice people uh, or their child, you know, children are, you know, they're small. They're, they're, the parents can do that to them eat pretty easily um, if they raise them that way or a spouse. And oftentimes they find the vulnerable or the very weak or even the very kind. And they know how to exploit that. And if it's somebody that's kind, then they know how to um, turn the guilt around to where that victim is feeling guilty about one tiny little thing that they did. And they blow it out of proportion and make the victim feel so guilty and they need to apologize. And a lot of kind people are able to look at themselves and their focus is to be better people, right? And if they, if it gets put in their head that they did something wrong, they'll feel really bad about it, even though they're not that bad, you know? And um, so I think they prey, P-R-E-Y, on the weak-minded and... Um, and so, anyway, I, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm just bringing it up because it's a topic that's been on my mind for a while. Um, a, a lot of people don't realize what they're in. Um, sometimes, like if you've been raised by narcissistic parents, which is basically abusive parents, you don't know any better. And sometimes they don't realize, um, even... Sometimes they don't even realize as adults that they think that, that this is normal. And then they're easily, you know, they can easily fall for abusive other, you know, abusive relationship or an abusive boss or whatever. Or sometimes they rebel from that. Like they realize, they have a, a realization that this is not normal. And they start taking a stand for themselves, you know. And I think there's a healthy and unhealthy way of doing that. You know, Jesus says to forgive, to forgive others. And there's there's a difference between forgiveness and allowing them to continue to abuse you. I don't think God necessarily wants a victim to continue to be abused. I believe that he would um, he would want them to be free from that. But at the same time, not to hold bitterness in the situation. You know, get away, get into a safe place. They need, you know, emotional healing. They need love. They need counseling. But it doesn't mean that you continue holding a grudge. You continue, uh, if you are a believer and you've been a victim to this, I, I would say to pray for your enemies. You know, Jesus said, love your enemies Love those who persecute you, right? Do good to those who persecute you. <clears throat> um, so, I don't think he's saying, you know, to stay stay around. Now, there is the case where he said, turn the other cheek. But that's when you're there, you know. You can't just, oftentimes it takes a little planning, a little, uh, a bit of a plan to get out from that situation. You know, I, it's, it's on my heart. I don't think, you know, I think I've met people with narcissistic moments 
but I don't know that I've ever been trapped under or with a narcissist. And um, I think I've been blessed in that, but I think many people have. And if you are a Christian, like I said, forgive them, but pray for them. You know, get in a safe place. Don't hold bitterness. Pray for them. And, uh, and try, you know, try to be as loving as you can and help others that are in the situation. Um, somebody else brought up a passage about the last days that talks about how the hearts of many will grow cold. They will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. Now, I think that there were narcissistic people in the Bible, um, but not many. At least that, you know, the, the characters that are well-defined. One that I thought of was Pharaoh. And I think many of the, the rulers in biblical times were definitely narcissistic. Um, you know, Pharaoh was so hard-hearted, and, and it even says God hardened his heart too, but like um, God would, through Moses, ask Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh kept saying no, like he, he believed he was God, you know. That's what these kings do, these tyrannical leaders, they believe that they're God. And they're not going to let some person tell them, you know, what to do, right? Well, God would bring these plagues on him, and he would continue to... Uh, now, I, I'm kind of getting into what I'm going to be talking about today. I, I didn't really plan it plan to do that so but anyway the point is yeah we'll we'll get into a little bit of that but the point is um the pharaoh was a narcissist um and probably a lot of like rulers were narcissists in the bible um <clears throat> and i think that most common people in biblical times from all the way from the old testament to the new testament which is, you know, span of several thousand years, uh, were too busy trying to survive. And they were probably under tyrannical leadership themselves uh, because of the way the po politics was set up, that there wasn't time for them to be narcissists. But we live in a unique time because of the freedom and liberties and prosperities that we've had and a lot of free time that common people, many common people are now narcissists, not just a few kings, right? Now, I don't know if there were a lot of common people, narcissists. I'm sure there, there were some that had, you know, do we have to have free time? Do we have to have, you know, prosperity to some degree to where you're not worried about what you're going to eat tomorrow to get that way? I think perhaps there's a little bit of being spoiled involved there that they were spoiled in some way or maybe abused themselves and they're holding a lot of bitterness and they believe they're entitled now and they're convincing themselves that they are all that um you know I, i'm just thinking through this and i i kind of wonder are we living in a time in which there's a lot more narcissists than there ever was you know in the history of the world 
And is this a fulfillment of what Jesus said, that in the last days the hearts of many will grow cold, they will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, right? So just some things to think about. And, um, I, you know, I, I, my heart goes out to those, and maybe some, someone listening to this is a victim of this. And I would challenge you to look up the word narcissist. You know, um, educate yourself, read it. And if you've come to realize that you are under the spell of a narcissist and they can't be reasoned with, you know, maybe they've gaslighted you and sometimes you feel like you're the, the bad one. But um, if you know in your heart of hearts that the, the fact is that they are the narcissist and you're a victim, you know, I would, you know, pray about it you know what does god what would god want you to do or ask god to help you you know ask god to help you get out of that and um and figure out the best way ask god to help you forgive them but also to get you into a safe place and um i've heard some people say and i'll, I'll finish this thought um this introduction part with this um, on the YouTube channels, because a lot of them are not believers that are talking about this. Some of them say that narcissists could never change. And I don't think that's true. I think anybody can change, that God can, can change anyone. And, um, you know, the Holy Spirit is a powerful, <laughs> powerful thing. I mean, you, you know, there's examples of people that are completely you know, terrible, corrupt, evil, and they, and God say, you know, God opens their spiritual eyes and they, they repent and they change. So I do believe a narcissist can change. Um, I was trying to find former narcissists, um, and I couldn't find anything, but I'm sure that they exist. <laughs> you know, I even tried, I remember when I was looking at pedophilia of one of the worst things anybody can do and trying to figure out is there former pedophiles people that got help and, and realized and changed I couldn't find any of that either but um, you know it's I do believe that any person that's still alive can be saved by the Holy Spirit and given a new heart. So anyway, that's kind of my rant for the beginning of this episode, and I will go ahead and get into the topic at hand, which is from slavery to freedom. In the last episode, uh, we talked about the Tower of Babel and how uh, there was one people, you know, everyone was united, same language, and um, God dispersed them as they, you know, when they were building a tower and coming together and trying to create one kingdom and unite everyone, um, they begin to, uh, well, God then decided, because he commanded them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, but they all wanted to stay in one place. And so God divided their languages and they were dispersed. They were divided because of the languages, but I think um, 
yeah, nations begin to form. And uh, there was a man that was alive probably when the Tower of Babel happened. It's very possible. I don't know if he was. But Abraham, or his name was Abram, was called by God. And, and a promise was given to him that he would be the father of many nations. And uh, he became the father of um, several you know, Arabic nations as well as Israel. And uh, so, you know, so the Tower of Babel is a few hundred years after the, uh, the flood. And uh, Abraham might have been born around that time. And he was getting pretty old and he hadn't had a child yet. Uh, although he did have one through a... Uh, maidservant or whatever they are um, and uh, that became Ishmael the father of Arabic nations but then finally at age 100 his wife was close to that and she was old that through her God said that would be the, the through the you know the promise uh, Messiah would come through and she laughed about it and everything. Well, her, she eventually had the baby, and it was Isaac. And after Isaac was born, God commanded him to, you know, and I don't know how old Isaac was. You know, he might have been 30, for all I know. And there's a story here. I want to quickly hit on this before I get into the main thing, because I think it's very important. God said, I want you to kill your son, your only son, whom I've given you put him on an altar and, and strike, you know, strike him dead. Now, Abraham probably was, you know, confused by this. But he knew, you know, he believed that God promised, he knew that God promised to uh, fulfill his promises through Isaac, right? That Isaac would be the father of his people and eventually the Messiah would come through the you know Isaac's bloodline and so Abraham thought maybe God will raise him from the dead or something he did he wasn't sure and, and you know Isaac when he was on the altar said you know we ha or not yet he wasn't on the altar yet but he said uh, we have the uh, the wood and the you know we're the fire and everything and but where's the lamb for the sacrifice and Abraham goes God will provide a lamb which I think I don't know if Abraham knew that he was prophesying there. <laughs> but um, he believed that God would somehow save Isaac or, or revive Isaac from the dead or something. I, I, I think he believed that. And he was being obedient to God in this very strange uh, thing that God asked him to do. And he put Isaac on the altar. He rose the knife. And then God said, stop. He says, now I know that you, you know, that you love me or you believe me and have faith, you know, whatever. I can't remember the, I'm not looking at it now. But, um, and then a ram appeared and, you know, uh, so God provided a ram that replaced Isaac. And I think there's a very good uh, story, m lesson here. It's, it's, it's really happened, but I think God was also showing them that this lamb sacrifice is uh, 
a substitute for what was to come on to us, right? And uh, so anyway, I, I wanted to touch on that real quick because I think, you know, the lamb sacrifices that we, you know, saw back with Abel, I think is, you know, all fulfilled in Jesus. And here's another example of that. Well, Isaac later had, you know, Jacob and Esau, and I won't get into that story here. And then Jacob, who became Israel, his name was changed to Israel, so he's the father of Israel, had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. To a degree, I think they're, one of them lost their inheritance and it was given to someone else. Uh, maybe one of Joseph's sons, but one, yeah, so one of his 12 sons was Joseph. And um, so this story, I think, I'll kind of give you some context here until before we get into the main thing. But uh, Joseph was the favorite of Jacob, of his father. And um, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, were jealous of him. And they finally decided we're going to, you know, one of them said, let's kill him. But one of the other brothers said, no, don't kill him. That's very, that's wrong. Let's sell him as a slave to Egypt, as if that's any better. <laughs> so they threw him in a pit, and then they saw Egyptians come by, and they sold him as a slave. And, uh, you know, I'll kind of fast forward through here. Um, he was accused by a woman of raping her and thrown into prison, falsely accused. He was, you know, and then in prison, he uh, started interpreting dreams. He had interpreted dreams before with his family, but, um, and one of them got out and got a job as a baker, I think, in uh, Potiphar's house, and later Potiphar, or uh, Pharaoh's house, Potiphar, no, Pharaoh, sorry, um, whoever, you know, the Pharaoh's house. Anyway, the Pharaoh had a dream, and then the 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 one whom um, the the baker was like, um, wait, I know somebody who's um, who can interpret dreams, and so they called Joseph out, and Joseph interpreted the dream, basically saying that there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, and uh, the Pharaoh was pleased with this and made Joseph second in command. So there's a lot of context here, right? So eventually he was reunited with his brothers and they were they were an honored people at the time. But they continued to be fruitful and multiply. Um, but a future pharaoh did not know Joseph. You know, Joseph had passed away. And a generation, a few generations later, whoever the pharaoh was, noticed that these people, the children of Israel, were multiplying, being fruitful and multiplying. So he said, uh, we need to put a stop to this or else they're going to overtake us. And up to this point, they had been, you know, peaceful with with them and they had been in a place, places of honor and everything and um, enslaved them. And even uh, actually before he enslaved them, he demanded that every baby boy of the, you know, children of Israel be put to death. 
and that way it would, you know, keep the population down. And uh, one of the uh, the the mothers decided she was going to try to save her son, which was Moses, and uh, wrapped him up, put him in a little uh, float in the water, and pushed him out. And a lady that works for you know in Pharaoh's house or whatever, um, you know, in the royal family or whatever she found the baby and called him Moses because I think it means something like because he because they drew him out of the water or something like that um, so he became part of the royal family <laughs> and God you know behind all of this stuff and uh, God was going to use him to free his people from from Egypt from this enslavement and uh, you know there's so much here well Moses killed one of the Egyptian soldiers because he saw this soldier beating a, a, a one of his people one of the Jewish or Israel children of Israel right and because he murdered them he was now afraid of his life and, and fled to the wilderness and he lived out in the wilderness for 40 years and then God appeared to him through a burning bush a lot of you know this you know these stories but I'm giving some context to get to the main point and um, Moses um, well he called Moses to to go back and ask Pharaoh to let his people go <laughs> now can you imagine being Moses at that time I remember talking about this on my YouTube channel in my Bible study series and thinking what if let's say a famous Jewish person in the 1940s I'm just making somebody up Groucho Marx he you know he was a Jewish guy um, I mean he was Jewish by blood I don't think he was religious wise but <laughs> suppose that in 1942 God told appears to Groucho and says I want you to go to uh, to Germany and tell Hitler to let his people to let the Jewish people go <laughs> you know imagine what you would think if you were Groucho Marx you know Groucho was an older man Moses was an older man right he wasn't young anymore and he's probably thinking what <laughs> you know why me I can't do that you know whatever like it, it seems rational when you think about it unless you realize that it God is behind it you know so God sends so finally he convinces Moses to go and I won't get into all the details on that but he goes back and tells Moses well I'll, I'll say this a lot of people don't know this because in all the movies Moses is the one that's like Charlton Heston with the very good speaker and everything well Moses said he was not a good speaker so God gave him his uh, what was it his brother or cousin or something Abraham uh, Aaron right and Aaron would speak for him so Aaron was really the one that was the speaker the the great speaker and Moses was just 
obeying God. Well, anyway, um, so he goes to Pharaoh, and of course, you know, I was talking about this earlier. Pharaoh says, ha, right, I'm going to let your people go, right? Um, forget it, you know. He probably knew Moses, too. I, I mean, I imagine, because Moses had been, of course, it had been 40 years, so I don't know how old this Pharaoh was. Um, but anyway, what? so through a series of plagues, and after every plague, the Pharaoh would harden his heart. You know, at the end, or during the plagues, he would say, okay, fine, I'll let your people go. And then afterwards, he would harden his heart again and say, I changed my mind. <laughs> And uh, just narcissistic behavior, I guess. And finally, the last one had to do with the death of the oldest child. And this is also an important note, an another lamb sacrifice here. That the oldest son would be put to death. That was the final plague. Unless there was a lamb put on the doorpost, you know, of the household then the angel of you know the angel that would come and kill the oldest son would pass over that house and passover that's why they celebrate the passover the passover of the lamb i mean think about that jesus died on the cross whoever has christ in their life will be passed over at judgment day you know, it's 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 a very cool thing, um, and uh, so so here's another lamb sacrifice. There there was many people that were children of Israel that did not put the uh, not many I don't know there if any of the Israelites did not put a lamb on their doorpost, their son, their oldest son would be put to death, would die. And I imagine that any Egyptians could have followed this too and put a lamb on their doorpost and be passed over. You know, I, I think God would work that way, right? He's not, he's not biased towards his group of people, although he has promises for them. Um, and so anyway, so Moses finally marches them out. You know, this was like, the worst Pharaoh had ever felt. And he says, fine, just go away. Just leave. So Israel and his people are marching out and come to a beach, you know, towards the, the Red Sea. And they're kind of trapped there. Well, meanwhile, Pharaoh hardened his heart again and says, we're going after these people. And they're coming after him and the Israelites are there trapped between, you know, there and a Red Sea the Red Sea parts, you know, through God helps through Moses raising his staff. They cross the Red Sea. The Egyptian armies are coming after them. They get into, the, you know, where this dry land appeared, where the Red Sea is. They're walking across and the Red Sea collapses and all of the, you know, the Pharaoh and all his, you know, armies and the rulers... Um, die right there and God delivered his people and through this time um, they're wandering in the wilderness now and God promises to, to bring them to his promised land for them the land of Canaan and they get to the land of Canaan 
and uh, well, before before they get to the land of Canaan, they uh, are complaining because now they're hungry and thirsty. Right? They're in the wilderness. They had just been delivered by the Egyptians, and they're complaining. And they said, "I wish you would have left us in Egypt as slaves, because at least there they would feed us and and give us drink." <laughs> you know, and. Um, but and and God did he he gave them he did give them food like manna and you know water from a rock but they continued to complain they were always complaining also in the wilderness God gave them the law you know to put on their hearts i guess you know to to show them good and evil right they arrived to the promised land and there are giants there the Canaanites that are giants and whether you know the whole nephilim thing i don't know but the main thing is they were giants that's what the bible says and they're thinking how are we going to beat them right and uh so eventually you know you got the walls of jericho there and uh they march god tells them to march around you know and all that stuff and the walls collapse and they're able to defeat jericho and this was not Moses. Moses had died at this point, and it was his heir, uh, Joshua. So here they are. They've been delivered. Now they are in the promised land. That was kind of a quick story and, um, a, a, you know, a quick uh, description of all that to give you context. And then we're going to compare it to the spiritual truths behind this whole series of events here. But before I do, I'm going to play a song by a Christian artist no, uh, named Steve Taylor, kind of indie rock. He was probably his biggest in the 90s, um, 80s and 90s. And this is a song that is related to what we're talking about, and it's called Cash Cow. And I didn't really mention this, but while they're in the wilderness, Aaron, or all the people are asking Aaron, uh, who was, you know, actually the the one speaking for Moses to create for them a golden calf to worship <laughs> and so that's kind of what this song is about move moving closer moving closer to the moving closer to the middle of the fray. Robert Tilton without the horns. And 
through the centuries it has roamed the earth like a ravenous bovine seeking a home it may lick. Cash cow, cash cow. From the valley of the shadow of the outlet mall to the customized petware boutique. From the trailer of the fry chef to the palace of the chic, the cash cow lurks. Once again, that is Steve Taylor, and uh, check him out. Uh, you can find him on iTunes and other places. Um, don't get it mixed up with Steve Tyler of Aerosmith. But uh, anyway, so yeah, so that's related to this topic at hand. Check out Steve Taylor. 
All right, so the story we just t told, that I just told about um, Israel being, the children of Israel being enslaved in Egypt and then set free, right? Um, there's a lot of spiritual parallels here, okay? Now I'm going to read some verses here about being slaves, slaves to sin. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Every, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through the baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead, the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, uh, baptism, I think that the crossing of the Red Sea is a picture of that as well. So here were these children of Israel enslaved by Egypt, just like we have been enslaved to sin. And you remember one of the last things they did before marching out of, of Egypt was the lamb on the doorpost which represents Christ who died on the cross for us and then in in baptism the uh, we are then baptized and washed and cleansed just as they walked through the Red Sea I think this is incredible uh, let me go back to uh, some more verses here Colossians 3 5 through 10 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now when they got into the wilderness, they got on the other side of the Red Sea, they were delivered from slavery, right? The uh, Israelites, just like we have been delivered from sin. If you are in Christ, you have been delivered from sin and you have been baptized. Now there's water baptism, which I think is symbolic for spiritual baptism. I think not every Christian has been water baptized. Some never will, some haven't yet. Um, but it's spiritual baptism that really saves you, I believe. It's being washed in the spirit. So if you think of us as being slaves, like the Israelites were slaves, to Egypt, we were slaves to sin. We get uh, saved by the blood of the Lamb, and then we get baptized as they were went through the Red Sea, right? 
And then Moses uh, gives them the Ten Commandments. And I wanted to share a couple verses about the law here. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those things, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hebrews 8.10 For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I kind of wonder if the writer of Hebrews uh, was quoting uh, that verse, albeit in a different language, so the words aren't exactly the same. Um, Ezekiel 36.26 And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your heart of flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. Psalms 119.11 I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So anyway, there's a lot of these verses about the law being put in our hearts. However, you notice that the Israelites, and I mentioned this briefly, were complaining and they wanted to go back to Egypt where they could be at least fed and, and have food and water, right? And this is a battle that's going on between the flesh and the spirit, you know. Our flesh wants to continue in slavery. We want to continue in sin. But with the new heart that we've been given, uh, we have the, the law, God's law written on our hearts as well. And there's kind of an inner battle going on. There's kind of dual personalities, so to speak. Um, and so I want to read a few verses about that now. Galatians 5, 16 through 22. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, re revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Uh, it stops there, but... Um, but you get the the point on the fruit of the spirit. It's it's the thing the things that are good, right? The the fruit of the flesh are things that are evil. There is therefore now no condemnation. This is Romans eight one and nine eight one through nine. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did 
by sending his own son in the likeness of his sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh and that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit the things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, for indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Now this struggle uh, between the law of sin and uh, or the flesh and the spirit uh, is shown here in Romans seven fourteen through twenty one, and Paul talks about how both of these exist simultaneously. Um, it says, "For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin." For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good I do not find, for the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that is that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. So here's Paul, the Apostle Paul saying that this flesh, the sin of flesh still exists in him. When you get saved, it's still there. And you have the spirit, the new heart, the new man that's been, you've been born again, spiritually born, that has no sin. That part of you does not sin. And there's a constant struggle going on where you need to put your flesh, I need to put my flesh to death each day and walk in the spirit. So uh, Christians do still have this flesh of sin and can fall into sin. But now we have the with the spirit you have the capability of dying to sin and walking in the spirit. And uh, I find that to be uh, very interesting. And so as you see the Israelites who were saved from slavery in Egypt and they were baptized through the Red Sea the law was given to them but they continued to want to be slaves they they disobeyed the law they asked for it you know one of the Ten Commandments was do not make any graven image to worship there's no other gods before me right before God and yet they asked Aaron to build them a golden cow to worship and then they said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. 
So they gave the, they wanted their eyes to see something, something they built with their own hands. And, uh, you know, so we are guilty of, even as believers, we still have this law of, or this uh, flesh of sin that dwells in us. Now, knowing myself and knowing yourselves, sometimes it seems impossible for us. The, you know, this nature of sin, this flesh, is so strong, it feels strong, uh, like it feels like it's impossible to beat. I mean, we all have our own weaknesses in life, right? And we were like, how am I ever going to not, you know, stop doing this or that or and and walk in the spirit and this is probably what the Israelites felt like when God led them into the promised land and there were giants there in fact the passage says that they felt like they were grasshoppers in their sight right and it seems like something impossible like here the Israelites were they had been marched out as slaves from Egypt and God brought them to the promised land, which was inhabited by these giants. Now, I want to read this passage, and I think this is a good parallel to thinking that sin is too strong for us. You know, that, like, I could never stop doing this or that, because it's such, it's such a stronghold in my life, right? Well, I'm going to read this passage here. It's, uh, okay, Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. Uh, not, not 3, sorry. Um, uh, let's see, verse, here it is. Um, verse 16. Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must, must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what, about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. Now quickly I want to point out, Jesus said, only God does good, right? He's pointing out the commandments. And I think that nobody keeps the commandments perfectly. We all fall short. But anyway, I digress. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept what do I still lack? Now, this man believes that he has kept everything. Sometimes when we approach God, maybe you believe that you don't have any vices, you don't have any issues. But if you approach God, he's going to show you how you fall short, because we all do. So anyway, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. God knew exactly where to hit him, right where it hurts, <laughs> in the sense that he knew what his weakness was. This man loved his possessions, he loved his money. 
Verse 22, it says, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty with a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know, he, he was showing the root, one of the root problems of this man. It was, you know, probably materialism, uh, you know, something of that nature. So when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So we think about the Israelites marching to God's promised land, the promised land, which was the land of Canaan, filled with giants, something impossible for them. But with God, all things are possible. God told them to march around the, the city of Jericho with horns and trumpets, and the walls collapsed. Now that is not something they did. They just obeyed God. Their trumpets, the vibration of the sound of the trumpets cannot knock walls down, but God can. It was in their obedience of doing what they could do, and God gave them the strength, or his strength is what defeated the enemy. So I really believe that as opposed to thinking, okay, I've got to defeat this giant, just obey what God asks you specifically. It might be a simple little thing, but if we're walking in the Spirit, you know, just listening to the Holy Spirit and walking in that, we will not fall uh give in to the, to the flesh. Alright, so I've gone a little over an hour here, but that is the topic for the day, and I pray that uh, this is all a blessing to you. And the next episode will be on the tabernacle and the symbology in that. Alright, thank you all, and have a wonderful day. This is the most awesomest podcast of all time. I am your host, Rob Hendrick. This podcast is brought to you by Proverbs 16, 18. Rob, go for instruction.